What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. And we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people. And each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people and another 10. We did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if you could have figured out what was happening to us, you might have been able to prevent it. Do you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever? Well, that didn't happen. And here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Fellow Americans, it's time to speak out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their name. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make us believe. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless America. Justin Dart. Disability Rights Leadership Series, 1999-2000. Project of Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, DREDA. With Access Video, University of San Francisco. Justin, thank you for joining us today and being willing to talk about your experiences with the ADA. Would you just introduce yourself uh, for the purposes of this tape? Hello, Justin Dart. Justin, You've been involved in disability politics and disability rights for a very long time. Can you just give us a short uh, introduction to how you became involved with the issues? Of ADA or of... Your personal, your personal involvement with disability. Disability rights. Well, I actually was a uh, traditional civil rights advocate before I was a uh, disability rights advocate. So, although I was a wheelchair user, when I was in college, I started the first uh, uh, integration group in the then segregated University of Houston. And, you know, and, and uh, uh, that was a pretty radical thing in 1952. That was quite a while before Martin Luther King, you know, sort of took things, brought things together. And uh, I had, uh, there was 15,000 students and I had five members in my in my group. That was kind of the political- substantial number. Po political atmosphere at that time. Uh, and so for, for many years, I was in the uh, 
in, in the civil rights movement, you know, uh, racial minorities. And then uh, uh, I think I, uh, I started uh, to get into disability rights issues as a businessman in Japan, uh, you know, in the, in the beginning, just as a kind of a thing that, you know, it's good for business and it's good for PR. And, and uh, then in the course of that, I went to Vietnam and that's where I got into uh, full-time disability rights. I, I saw things there that made me uh, totally ashamed of the role that I was playing, you know, sort of a businessman getting my picture in the paper and on television for helping the poor handicapped people. And uh, and I saw that uh, uh, mistake and tragedy carried to the extreme in Vietnam where uh, people with disabilities were actually dying under the most uh, barbarian conditions and so I uh, decided to drop, <clears throat> drop out of business and go into the disability rights uh, movement at that time. When was that? That was in uh, 66. And when did you first come to Washington? Oh, I think that was in, uh, in to live in Washington. Uh, we came up here. Uh, I was a member of the National Council, and we had uh, uh, on the National Council had uh, written the first drafts of a ADA. And so I came up here uh, for two months and uh, uh, put my uh, computer in my uh, some boxes and the television set and a few things in the back of my pickup truck and came up here to stay two months. And we have now been here for uh, 14 years. That's and, how it happens sometimes. Ne never uh, went, went back. You served in several administrations in several capacities. Can you describe those for us, please? Well, I served three times on the National Council in the Reagan administration. I, I served a, a term, a, a short term, a 15 month term as a commissioner of US, US Commissioner of Rehabilitation until I made an unauthorized uh, statement about disability rights to the Congress and got fired. And, and then uh, I served four years under the Bush administration as chairman of the uh, President's Committee, I served three years as chairman of the Congressional Task Force on the Rights and Empowerment of People with Disabilities, which was essentially an, an ADA task force where we held forums in every state and collecting material uh, about discrimination against people with disabilities. What was your statement before Congress that caused you to be fired? Well, it was an oversight hearing where you just go down and you, you you tell how great your department is doing, you know, 
and I didn't think my department was doing too great. I thought we were breaking the law and and that we were forced to do things by our the paternalistic bureaucrats in the education department that that were uh, number one illegal and number two were just plain wrong and that I was not uh, allowed to have the legislative authority which I you know which was written into the law and and so I uh, went down there and the uh, the Department of Education gave me a statement to make after a long argument. And I said, here's the statement I want to make. They said, well, here's the statement you're going to make. So I went down there, and and uh, it was a packed room. It was a, there was a lot of controversy at that time, and it was a packed room. And I just said, Mr. Chairman, uh, uh, here's my prepared statement, and I ask you to make this part of the record, and now I'd like to present to you a statement of conscience. And the result was you got your pink slip in the mail. Yeah. Actually, the guy that fired me was a friend of mine, a friend of my father, and uh, up in the White House, you know, who was head of personnel, and he was on vacation when this happened, and so that was a few days later after it had already come out in the newspapers, and and uh, I called him up, and I said, Bob, have you heard about my statement to Congress? He said, I have. And I said, I hope it didn't embarrass the president. And he said, it did. And I said, do you think I ought to resign? And he said, yes. I said, I resign. That was, that was the, whole, the whole thing. How did you feel about that principal position? Was that, was that an important moment for you? Well, I think so, and and uh, uh, it was a very complex situation. There was people on the other side that I totally respect, you know, and that, that are now my best friends and allies. Uh, but uh, uh, I think I was, uh, you know, taking a stand against paternalism and and people that I didn't consider to be real real supporters of democracy up in the, in, in the uh, education department there. When you were serving on the NCD board, what was, well, what was the tone within the organization that resulted in the first drafting of the ADA? What was the motivation? What was the impetus? Well, you may recall that when President Reagan uh, was elected, uh, he fired the previous board, which was a Hall of Fame board with Elizabeth Boggs and Judy Hillman and, and, and others. And then he appointed all Reagan people. Uh, and I don't know why he appointed me, maybe because of my father was a big supporter of his, and I had been very active in Texas. I had already had five gubernatorial appointments down there. And uh, then he uh, uh, appointed uh, Sandy Perino, who was a, uh, who got on, I think she was a Rockefeller Republican, and they thought they ought to put one of those on. And 
and they appointed me because of my father probably, and, uh, and they appointed Joe Dusenberry, who was the the uh, uh, commissioner of rehabilitation in South Carolina, and kind of the the, the uh, elderly statesman of vocational rehabilitation. And uh, I, I really think that uh, Joe Dusenberry and Sandy Prino and I uh, uh, turned out to be a, a whole lot less controllable than than whoever made those appointments uh, Why do you say that? Uh, figured. Well, we wrote TADA, and, and we, uh, uh, Joe Dusenberry fought his heart out and got the National Council uh, liberated from the Education Department and made an uh, independent uh, agency. He got fired from that, but at, at least out of his uh, chairman's position. And then by the time that uh, uh, that, 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 that we three uh, got together and, uh, and, and, and created a policy, which included a, uh, a, a publication, the National Policy on People with Disabilities, where where I went around to all 50 states writing this thing, and I think it was recommending civil rights and and uh, the whole gamut, you know. And, and uh, little by little, the other people on the council uh, became converted to disability rights. And so in the end, we, we had... Uh, uh, Amazingly, a, just a kind of a flaming uh, disability rights group. And uh, uh, when, uh, when we published ADA the first time, and, and we were smart enough not to tell the White House we were doing it until it was published, and we got a call from the White House, Lex Frieden did. We hired Lex Frieden, that's another thing. And uh, he got a call and said, uh, they said, what is this thing you sent over here? He said, uh, I read in the first chapter of this civil rights law. He said, you've gone even farther than Kennedy. He said, the president won't touch this with a 10-foot pole. He said, we're sending it back. Fix it up. Take Get this stuff out of there. And that was the reaction that we, uh, that, that we got. And uh, instead of offering to take it out, uh, we uh, went over to, uh, uh, oh, what's his name, the, uh, the the Attorney General for Civil Rights. Uh, it was uh, Bradford. Bradford Reynolds. Bradford Reynolds. We went over and I said to Bradford, Bradford, uh, I don't think, instead of talking about what we were going to take out, we didn't start that way. We, we said, Bradford, uh, we're going to present this civil rights law, and I really don't think that President Reagan wants to go down as, as the president who opposed uh, extending the Declaration of Independence to people with disabilities. And he thought that over for about 10 seconds, and he said, Justin, uh, the president, not only is he not going to oppose it, he's going to support it.
and you're going to get a signed statement on that, and we did. You got a statement from President Reagan that he supported? Yeah. Well, he we got a statement that he supported the report, and that he uh, we have two signed statements from him uh, that sound pretty radical civil rights, you know. And uh, this was uh, the report achieving independence. Uh, it, yeah, toward independence. Toward independence. Right. That was the first time we. Uh, but he's, he, he before that he wrote and supported the. Uh, the National Policy for People with Disabilities, which also recommended full civil rights coverage. When he drafted the first, I, the first blueprint for the ADA, what was the council thinking about? What was its goals? What were what was your involvement? Well, we just thought it was high time to have civil rights. There was such massive, uh, massive evidence of uh, of, of uh, discrimination segregation and anything you want to call it, you know, and uh, so we, 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 I don't think we ever considered not doing it. Was there any opposition by other board members to the idea of a comprehensive piece of legislation? There was in the beginning, and when I first went around the country, and I asked people in each of the 50 states to participate in drafting this uh, platform for uh, the National Policy for People with Disabilities. And so, uh, and, and they actually participated in writing it. In 48 out of the 50 states, they wrote some, you know, real words in there and found out mistakes that were, you know, holes that we had in it. And so I brought it back and passed it out over at the Capitol holiday. And when we had one of our meetings and and uh, the thing came up on the agenda and the uh, one person on the council said, uh, said, well, it's a very interesting uh, document. Uh, they just has passed out here and said, of course, uh, we've got to uh, uh, fix it up and get all the civil rights stuff out because we'll, we'll get a lot of trouble if we don't and, and clean up the language and get the civil rights law uh, proposal out of it and so forth. And so I responded that, that well, uh, whatever you want to do, but this was written by, uh, this was written by the people of the United States. And uh, right at that point, Joe Dusenberry, God bless him, and he's a tall man, looks a little bit like George Washington, and he just slowly stood up and let let it kind of a pregnant silence develop, you know, and and he said, folks, this was written by the president of the United, by by the people of the United States. He said, I want to hear a motion to approve this document without changing one single word and then somebody moved somebody seconded it and uh, uh, nobody voted against it and and the president wrote a very strong uh, support for it this is president reagan president reagan for the proposed legislation 
or for a principle of civil rights. Well, he didn't say, I'm going to pass civil rights in three weeks, but he, he did make a, a very strong statement where he said, I agree with you that people with disabilities have an absolute right uh, to, I forget what he said, you know, access to society with full equality and manners of their own choosing and uh, I support it, you know, we, we, we got the signed document and I'm sorry I didn't bring it, I didn't know this was going to All right. Come out. And that, that letter did not come out without a little arm twisting. Oh, what kind of arm twisting? Well, it was a long time that they that the White House did not respond to this. And uh, uh, I remember one meeting that we had, uh, I think it was the next meeting, and, and the, our, our friend from the White House came down who was representing people with disabilities, Bob Sweet, he was a good guy. And he came down and he said, well, we're, you know, it's an interesting thing, we're studying it, we're not, Maybe we ought not to get into it or something. And uh, so he went back, and then the council got sort of upset, and they uh, asked me to draft a letter to the White House vigorously protesting their lack of support, and that we were going to release to the press. That's how far his loyal appointees had come. And and so I went out of the room and I called him and I was lucky to get him back at the office. And I said, look, uh, I've been asked to write this letter. I mean, it's been asked to write it. I've been ordered to write it. And they told me what to say and this is what they told me what to say. And I said, isn't there some way that we can get a letter from the president before I finish writing this letter? And wouldn't that be nice, you see? And we did. Very auspicious beginning. The ADA is a comprehensive civil rights statute that's really being emulated all over the world. What do you think was going on in the United States when it was originally created that made it possible to introduce that kind of sweeping reform? What's the character of the country at that time? I'm not sure I'm uh, enough of a social or historical critic to, uh, to 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 tell you that I just know what you know what I was doing and hearing and and uh, I will admit that when we first start started promoting the idea of a comprehensive civil rights law in the early 80s, and that was before the, anybody on the council supported it, or and, and that was when we were going around uh, writing this national policy, you know. And we went to quite a few meetings. This, these were meetings I was doing myself that the Chairman Dudenberry had allowed me to do. And at quite a few meetings, there was simply no enthusiasm forever for, for, for uh, no enthusiasm at all for a comprehensive civil rights law. I mean, the, the, the average uh, response was, uh, 
Uh, well, Justin, we're, we got 504 and we can't enforce that. And we got all these other laws and we can't enforce them. The last thing we need is another, is, is to go back and ask him for 10 or 100 times as much before we, uh, before we get 504 enforced. Well, I had a different idea. And I had the idea, and I think I was right, that Americans uh, have a great tradition and are very proud of their comprehensive civil rights actions from the Declaration of Independence. The Americans like the word all, you know. And uh, uh, partial civil rights, they sort of sometimes tend to see as subsidies. Uh, but, but they can understand the emancipation of all the slaves. And they can understand the, uh, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 64, where, where all the people can go to the bathroom and, and uh, go into the theater. And so I said, uh, frankly, that may, it may not sound uh, logical, but I think that uh, it's going to be easier to sell a comprehensive civil rights law in the tradition of the civil rights law of 64 uh, than, than it will to, uh, to to sell this incremental advance, which, is done, which, as you say, doesn't seem to be going too good anyway. And uh, so we... Uh, it, 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 I think people started to see it, but uh, th there wasn't much, uh, there wasn't a big groundswell for it. I think I had this uh, 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 passion because of my uh, back original background with the civil rights movement as opposed to the disability rights movement. And I was romantically and intellectually and uh, um, uh, biased in favor of uh, the civil rights approach. And I had read Gandhi and I was very much influenced by Gandhi and, 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 and then by Martin Luther King. What were your personal hopes with legislation? Well, uh, I never thought that it would transform everything instantly because we we have uh, uh, the history that no civil rights law ever has transformed things uh, instantly. I mean, we freed the slaves and and then we uh, had a uh, another century of horrible discrimination and, and then we have the, the Rights Act of 64 and we still got discrimination. That was a very successful law, but we still have discrimination so I hope that it would be a start and that it would be the nation the greatest nation in the world saying people with disabilities are equal they are citizens they are equal and and uh, uh, it's the United States of America saying it and saying it in the only way that Americans understand saying it by law and not just a, a lecture by the president in higher the handicap week. And, and uh, uh, so uh, I never thought it would pass in my lifetime. 
and I was uh, surprised about that. I didn't really think it would be as successful as it had has been. Now I, I say that knowing that the courts have have uh, knocked out a lot of it uh, uh, recently, but uh, there have been millions of physical uh, accommodations made. I don't, I don't think anybody could even estimate how many millions of accommodations have been made. And there have been millions of psychological accommodations made. Businessmen and, and uh, local government people and all kinds of people who I think never really thought of us as being fully human. And then suddenly they're told, whether they like it or not, that uh, their lawyers go in and tell them, uh, uh, folks, you better pay attention to this because these folks can come in and sue you. And uh, and whether they, you know, whether whether these businessmen and and, and these other folks uh, agree with that or not, the law, that uh, they finally see us as real people who can come in and yes, sue them, and and real people who who want to get into their restaurant. And, or their uh, bank or whatever it is, and do business with them, and uh, and people who have the same rights as you know black people or women or, or uh, Hispanics. What do you think the major obstacles? Yeah. Sure. Well, Dan, 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 hold, hold that I hope there's a little time at the end for me to give my opinion about the future, because that's what I'm working 100% on at this time. It's very important. You were saying that you thought it was important that the role of the Reagan administration and President Reagan be uh, understood. Tell us what your views are about that. Well, we did write the ADA. He had a chance to knock it down, and he didn't. And. Uh, uh, and specifically didn't. He specifically came out and gave it a, a, a sign support. It wasn't a real, it wasn't a real uh, flaming Martin Luther King support, but it was, uh, uh, he certainly didn't oppose it. And, uh, and he did not interfere with the National Council. You know, Reagan was famous for delegating authority and then, and then sort of going, taking a nap. And, uh, uh, and, and he, uh, he, he uh, did not interfere with us. Well, that was a, that was a real, a positive aspect of his hands-off administration. What do you think the major obstacles to success were when the legislation was developed? Well, when the legislation was developed, uh, one of the obstacles was me and uh, Lex Friedman and Sandra Friedman. You know, uh, we wrote uh, the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act of 1988, which was introduced in Congress. And uh, I'm and, and it was uh, uh, just an ordinary, uh, you know, disability civil rights law. And 
we're going to make everything accessible and so forth. And uh, I think that Pat Wright and Bobby Silverstein and some of the more sophisticated people who knew about legislation, which I did not, uh, they used to call that darts flatten the earth law. And uh, where we had, uh, uh, I think, as I remember, required that uh, every building in the United States would have to be accessible in three years. And, and uh, so, uh, uh, and we were going to write 504 over again. And uh, a lot of things like that, which uh, were not really good ideas, you know. And so Pat uh, and, and some of them came to us, and Pat gave me a call one day and, and said, Yes, and if you just make me, let me make a few little adjustments, like keeping 504 in the law and, 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 and so forth, and give a little more flexibility. Uh, uh, about how the law is implemented, uh, and I promise you, I will, I will work on this uh, law every hour of every day from now on. And I said, "Well, you got, you got, you got a deal, you know." And uh, so they rewrote the law into what I think is the greatest civil rights law in history. I think it's the law of the 21st century, and I've heard Dick Thornburg say that, that it's a different law, it's a free enterprise civil rights law, because it, it gives people at the grassroots uh, some uh, uh, decision-making capacity in exactly how the law is going to be implemented, depending on the time and the place and the circumstances and the economy uh, of everybody, it's a it's a common sense thing, and and I think it's a great work of uh, uh, of genius, and and with with Bobby Silverstein and and, and Pat Wright, and I, I think Silverstein was the final one that wrote it, and Pat's the one that negotiated it, and uh, uh, so I, I I I really consider it to be a work of uh, of genius, not simply a traditional civil rights law, that it goes way beyond traditional civil rights and breaks new ground. And, and, and what is the difference between the ADA and traditional civil rights laws in that respect? Well, it gives, uh, well, first place, the ADA covers about a hundred more, a hundred times more places, or maybe a thousand times more places than the Civil Rights Act of 64. The, the ADA covers every uh, public uh, facility. Millions and millions and millions of them. And, and, and the ADA does give common sense flexibility to the people who are going to implement the law, namely the, the, the person with a disability and the, the person on the other side who is who is uh, uh, mandated to do the accommodation. And, and they say, yes, you do have to provide equality, but that equality can be provided in, in, in different ways. And no, we don't expect you to go bankrupt. Uh, if you can afford it, we expect you to do it all. 
if you can't afford it, we expect you to provide that equality in, in, in the next best uh, way. You have to do it, but you don't have to go bankrupt to do it. As the UDA was going to Congress, was there a time when you believed it might not pass? Well, I'm a sort of a pessimist, and so I'm, I've often joked that I'm going to write a book winning by worrying. So I, uh, uh, I, I, uh, there was plenty of times when I thought it wouldn't pass. I, I, as it went on, I didn't. I stopped worrying about it not passing, but I, I worried about it passing uh, as as worse than nothing. Of course, Pat was very aware of that. That the, that the way some of these folks wanted to uh, uh, write it in the Congress, uh, it would have frozen our segregation into the law. That'd be worse than nothing. And that's what they did with the uh, laws, so-called civil rights laws for black people after the Civil War. They wrote laws that were worse than no laws at all. And uh, so, and they were going to write a uh, Jim Crow law for us. I used to get cussed out for using that word Jim Crow because they said that would just make the opposition angry and everything. But uh, that's where I saw it. Are there, was there a moment when you were, when your worrying was over and you were sure it was going to be enacted? A particular moment that you recall? Nope. You weren't sure till it was really over? No, I, I didn't believe it till it was over. Uh, oh, I mean, maybe on the last day when the, when the, I guess the Senate voted to accept the conference committee or something. I, I forget what it was. But uh, I might have uh, tried to believe that it was really going to happen. But uh, boy, until we got that that thing signed, I uh, I was worried all the way. Pat recalls a moment when there was some issue being discussed, and there was some concern in the disability community that if community didn't give in on the issue, we might lose the bill. She had a conversation with you about that. Do you remember that? Oh, I remember it well. I remember a couple of them like that. We had two or three like that. And she always said, well, trust me, I was usually on the conservative side. And I said, well, let's not, let's get the main principle of equality. And if we get that, I don't want to compromise. I don't want a Jim Crow law. But if it's just some little extra thing, uh, let's not, uh, uh, you know, let the whole law go uh, for that little thing. We get that little thing later. And so one of them was the food handler issue with people with HIV. Could they be food handlers? And they were already covered in the law. But could they be food handlers? And Pat was adamant to get that in the law. And I, I was too, but and I said, well, Pat, I'm not sure this is worth, uh, you know, and this was a few days before the law was about to pass. And we went up there in the White House and we were meeting Boyd and Gray. 
and in Boyden, there was no way he was going to put that thing into law, you see. And that, you know, the food handlers uh, could, could actually uh, be covered by ADA, even though they had HIV, even though the doctors and scientists said that there was, there, there was no scientific uh, evidence at all of any danger. But uh, so we went down there and, uh, and she and, and I made my speech and I said, supporting Pat. Boyden, we've come too far to tell our grandchildren that we almost did this law and then we got in this little hassle about this little thing. What are we going to tell our grandchildren if we can't get together on this? And uh, he said, well, I agree with you. I want to fix it. And so then Pat came on and said, uh, uh, and she can correct me if I misremember part of it, but she said, uh, Boyden, this was Friday afternoon, if, if the president doesn't come out on our side to include food landers in this law, by 10 o'clock Monday morning, we're going to hold a press conference and renounce the law. I didn't say anything, but I, I really was on the edge of my chair, I tell you. And uh, I don't think she would have done it, but uh, she she scared the devil out of them, and they, and they reversed their position. I don't ever remember her losing an argument about the ADA. Wasn't it blocked? What? I never had the courage to ask her. I have a kind of a feeling that she would not have let the law go down the tube, uh, but it worked. What was, what was Boyden's reaction? What? What was Boyden's reaction? Oh, he just sort of got that nauseating green color, you know. <laughs> and uh, he... Uh, Uh, anyway, he believed in enough to to, to 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 go along with us. What was your relationship with Vic Thornburg during those years? Well, I wasn't very close to him, but I'm a total fan of his. I don't think it would have passed without him. I think there's a few people like Pat and Dick Thornburg and and a few others that it it, it just Bobby Silverstein and Pat. And, uh, and, and and a few others that it just wouldn't have passed without them. And, and Boyden, probably. And uh, Evan that went in and and, and uh, uh, educated all those people about in the back room, you know, teaching them bridge and everything. You know, the ADA is really a study many people think in leadership. What do you think the key ingredient was that enabled the legislation to pass ultimately? Well, uh, I think we had the right time. We had the right president. We had the right leaders in Congress, you know, standing Hoyer and 
Tom Harkin, who were willing to just put everything else aside and, and carry it forward. I think we just had a bunch of fanatic geniuses that uh, that they rammed it through. And uh, I'm not maybe I'm not answering the question very well. And I think we had the right the the, the right time, and we had. George Bush, the the uh, aristocrat, the man of his word, the believer in the American dream, from his point of view, and uh, uh, he was the he was the right man at the right time. And I've I've noticed that uh, since ADA passed. And, and you might think, did we just sort of drag Bush into that screaming, you know? I don't really think so. Because uh, since it has passed, and it's been under severe attack, as you well know, uh, many times in the press and on the television and in books, and, and uh, he and Dick Thornburg have consistently stood up stood straight up and and said, listen, this is a good law, period. And I'm just as proud of it as it was the the, 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 the the day I signed it. And that's one of the statements that President, former President Bush made when it was uh, uh, under severe attack. And I've seen Dick Thornburg walk into a room in the Capitol Hill Club that was full of people who were attacking ADA and and that were speaking about it, you know, from the microphone and take his turn at the microphone and tell him that this is the greatest civil rights law that's ever been written. And it's the, uh, and it's the, uh, it's the civil rights, a different kind of a civil rights law and it's the civil rights law of the 21st century. What do you think the greatest threat was to Getting the law enacted. Getting what? What was the greatest threat to getting the law enacted as it was going through? Oh, I think the greatest threat was that they, the the amendments, the the, the last votes were very misleading because they were one-sided. But the amendments and the very strong support for several amendments that would simply have made it into a Jim Crow law that would made it into a law that that authorized segregation under certain circumstances. And, uh, uh, and Pat knows more about, you know, exactly what each one of them said, but uh, I think there were several amendments uh, presented that uh, would have killed the law, and at, at, at the very least would have made people like uh, Pat Wright and I, uh, people who wanted to kill the law because it would be worse than nothing. What was your biggest contribution to the passage, your biggest personal contribution? Uh, I think, let me preface this by saying that I am often introduced as the father of the ADA when I make speeches and it irritates the devil out of me. 
uh, and I'm not trying to be modest, simply, this was a law that had many leaders. Many, many leaders. I don't mean hundreds, but uh, there, there was no father of ADA, and there was, if, if there was any one name, maybe you could say Pat Wright is the mother of it. But uh, uh, I think that uh, I was in, uh, in the early days. I was a kind of a voice in the wilderness, you know, for, for this thing back in the early 80s, going around getting it down on paper, you know, the national policy and, and, and helping to convert the uh, National Council to consider writing it and uh, to uh, making, uh, doing political advocacy uh, with the uh, various possible supporters of the law. Uh, we haven't advertised as much, but you know, our, our movement doesn't have a pack, a big million dollar pack to make contributions. So Mrs. Darden and I are fortunate to be reasonably well off. And, and then we made quite a large number of uh, political contributions and we would see these people, whether it was Reagan or Bush or Kennedy or Harkin or whomever, you know, and we would see them numerous, numerous occasions as lobbyists, not as policy people. And they knew we were there because we had written checks. And I remember, and, and I just had one message, ADA. I said, thank you for supporting ADA. It was like a Coca-Cola ad, you know. They knew what I was going to say when they saw me coming. And I remember one time, I was in the White House and receiving line with President Bush, and he, uh, he uh, turned to the next person in the line. He said, this is Justin Dart. He's the ADA man. And he, and he said, Justin, uh, I, I looked across the park yesterday at the uh, dedication of the Korean War Memorial. I saw your hat, and I thought about the ADA. And so those kind of things we did. Now, what I did not do is uh, negotiate in Congress. That is Pat Wright's job, and I was at least smart enough to figure that out. And, uh, you know, I'll do my thing. And, and, and when she told me uh, what she wanted me to uh, support, and I would go and support it. That's why we called her the general. Uh, but we... we, we we did our uh, thing, and we, and we took five trips around the country, uh, and we were just like a broken record. Uh, one of these television ads that shows over and over and over again, the radio ads, and we just kept talking about uh, ADA and, and printed hundreds of thousands of stickers, stuff like that. So, uh, what kind of 
contribution do you think your trips made to the, the legislation? Well, I think it made it. It, it got the grassroots. Uh, it helped to get the grassroots active, but that wouldn't have. Uh, uh, that by itself wouldn't have passed the law. I mean, if 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 Pat hadn't negotiated it through Congress, if if Evan hadn't played bridge with the right people and sort of convinced them that we were, you know, that, that we had something to say important. And, uh, Your trips around the country are very <coughs> famous and well known because you enable people to tell their stories. What was the way in which that story was delivered to Congress and to the White House? Well, we delivered it in many ways, and we uh, kept up a constant barrage of reports to Congress about what we were doing and what we were hearing and how many people were coming. Well, a lot of people came to those forums. See, we held a congressional forum in every single state, and 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 uh, some of in some of the larger states, like in California, obviously, in Northern California, Southern California. Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Pennsylvania and, and, and so forth. And uh, uh, we, we gathered written materials. Well, what we did is we had a form whereby anybody could come and say anything for five minutes. And we would sit there and sometimes we'd sit there at nine o'clock at night and we would sit there and listen till they got finished. Nobody ever got turned away and first come, first served, with the possible exception of somebody that had to go to the hospital or something like that. And uh, so they would come and say their thing. And that was all recorded. And then uh, many of them brought writings. And that was all taken taken in and and many of them uh, people who didn't come sent these these so-called uh, discrimination diaries and 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 would tell their stories of being discriminated against so we we put all this written material into a big pile of, of uh, a very large pile of carton boxes and wheeled it into a congressional meeting and, and piled it up so high on the table that they couldn't see the witnesses and the witnesses couldn't see the congressman and uh, we said this is th these are the people that uh, want to have ada and and you know uh, i don't know why probably because we my reputation went ahead of me and i was Everybody knew I was totally biased for ADA, you see. Now, we were supposed to be holding these unbiased, objective uh, forums, you see, and there was uh, uh, very little objective or unbiased about it. Because I started off every meeting giving a speech for ADA. And, uh, but at any rate, I do not recall, out of all the thousands of people we had, one single person who opposed it out of 50 states, you know, well, uh, probably means the opponents decided to boycott them, but uh, 
At any rate, we could report that to Congress. Here, here are the people who favor it. And over here on this, right here are the people who didn't favor it. Small, a very small list on the right side. No list at all. And, and so... Uh, Well, you mean about ADA? Oh, I think it was uh, when the law was being signed with 3,000 people in the White House, South Lawn of the White House. And I was sitting on a podium next to President Bush, you know. And I expected, I was going to go on a vacation. I hadn't gone on a vacation for 10 years or, or 15 years. And I was really going to go on a vacation the next day for two weeks. And uh, I expect to feel uh, euphoria. And the band is playing the glory, you know, the battle hymn of the Republic. And, the, and, and here I am with this. You know, I was a juvenile delinquent. I don't know whether you read my story. Here's this juvenile delinquent sitting up next to President of the United States in the biggest signing in the history of the White House. And I expected to be on euphoric. And I think my proudest moment was when I did not feel euphoric. And it suddenly, and then there wasn't any two-week vacation, and it suddenly dawned on me, looking out at all these people, and thinking of the handful of us that had really rammed this thing through, you know, and promised everybody was going to work. I said, what would happen if this law goes down like the prohibition law? Or, or like uh, uh, one of the hundreds of laws that were passed with great hopes and didn't work. I said, how long would it be before these people get another chance? And whose fault will that be? I said, these people, I was like, these people never asked me to bet their lives on my judgment and Pat Wright's judgment that this is a the perfect time to pass this civil rights law because if it doesn't work, it'll be another century maybe before anybody's going to try it again. And it's not only these people and people in America, it's people all over the world. And these people never ask you, Justin Dart, to bet their futures on your judgment. And I was proud. One second. Justin, you were just concluding your thoughts about uh, the trust that had been uh, given to you by your disabilities as you participated in the signing of the ADA. Just finish that thought. Yeah, so I was sitting there expecting to feel euphoria. I felt depressed and I said, Justin, why do you feel depressed? You know, 
here's this delinquent kid sitting up to the next president of the United States and and uh, and they're, they're playing the battle in the Republic. It's just like the end of a 1930s movie, you know. And then it occurred to me that it's not the end. It, that here are all these millions of people in the United States and half of a billion people around the world whose futures will be determined by whether this law is successful or not. And if it isn't successful, if it goes the way of the prohibition uh, uh, amendment, which it easily could, uh, when would there be another opportunity to have a law like this? 20 years, 100 years? How would that affect people's lives? And then it came to me and said, Justin, those half a billion people around the world, they never ask you to bet their lives on this law, which you have decided to do. And, and that made me know that I would have to spend the rest of my life uh, trying to fulfill that responsibility. And I felt like it was a rock on my back, you know. Uh, uh, but I was at least in some ways proud that I was uh, able to have that perception instead of just uh, uh, flying off to the Caribbean or something. And, uh, and there haven't been any vacations. Not even after the ADA? No. That was an epiphany of some kind for you. No. That moment. How has it affected the work you've done since the ADA was enacted? Well, I think I've done much, much better work since the ADA passed and since I had that kind of attack of seriousness. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, I have, uh, uh, participated since then and at a certain point I resigned from the government to participate full time and uh, support the president in health care and, and uh, then to get into the elections full time and as you probably know in this 96 election I was a Republican for Clinton and uh went to uh, all 50 states again and we in the community gave Mr. Clinton a 46 point margin which was a world record margin for our community and uh, uh, and then as you know 21 uh, months ago I had a very serious uh, heart attack, congestive heart failure, and I was in the hospital for nine days, and they tried all these different things. I was beyond; I was too old for operations, and 
some of the more dramatic procedures, but they tried electroshock and all kinds of strong medicine. And they finally said, well, Mr. Dark, we've, we've tried it all and we haven't been able to get your heart back and, you know, working right. Uh, but uh, uh, we can uh, we can keep you comfortable and and uh, here in, in, in here in the hospital and so forth, you know, and sort of the don't expect to live too long speech. And, and I tell you, I didn't feel like I was going to live very long. And I had to have a heart attack about every two days that were you know, where my heart would go out near to just stopping it. And I thought it over and I thought, well, uh, if that's the case, I'm gonna go home and, and I'm not finished with this fight yet. I'm gonna go home tomorrow and do my politics. And I got a couple things I wanna do. If I got two days left, I'm gonna spend it doing politics, you see. And uh, the, the politics of, of, of disability and, human rights. And so much over the protest of the doctors, I went home and, and they said, you're going to die in a few days if you go home. And, and they put me in hospice care and told hospice I wasn't going to last very long. And, but I, I, I did and I have every single day, no matter how bad I felt, spent as much time as I could spend uh, on, uh, on our politics. And uh, I think I have uh, done some of my best work during that time. There's nothing like you see the perception that you uh, may die next Monday, and you probably will, to get your mind focused on what you're doing between now and next Monday. And uh, so I, th I think I've done some of my better work since then. I've done much better work since the ADA passed, and I I think I got a little more serious. Are you optimistic about the ADA? Yes. Uh, I'm optimistic about the ADA. Because it has been so successful so far, it's been more successful than I ever thought. And I, I saw this Harris poll about how 83% of the businessmen were supporting ADA. I almost fainted after, after listening to the propaganda of the National Federation of Independent Business and the uh, Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I, had, I didn't believe all this stuff, but I thought it, it, it must be partly true, you know. And, and here uh, we, we find that businesses are supporting ADA. And, and I go out and go down the street and go in a hotel. You've seen it. And, and we just pass ramp after ramp after ramp. And even uh, some little pizza restaurant and uh, some hotel or some condominium or whatever it is. And then you go inside and you see these, uh, the, the, these braille, you know, and all the elevators. And, and uh, so forth. I think it's been a big success. Now, I think it's possible that if we 
don't. hold our own in the next election if we lose the White House and uh, both houses of Congress and, and, and they will all those branches get in the control of the ultra-conservatives uh, that are controlling for example the House of Representatives uh, we could uh, it's conceivable that we could lose it, and a lot of other things, or get it so minimized that it would uh, be uh, considered uh, near to meaningless. You know. You had said before we started talking that you wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the future. You had said you wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the future because that's what you're working on. Tell us, tell us about that. Well, I, I truly believe that uh, our movement and our nation and humanity itself stands at an historic uh, crossroad now. Uh, we have achieved thanks to patriots past, thanks to patriots present like you and and, and and Greta, we have achieved the richest, most democratic nation in the history of the world. Right today, and we, we break stock market records and income records uh, and profit records every week. We knew this a good last week, but most weeks. And uh, uh, we, uh, you know, crime is down and, and unemployment is down, interest rates are down, and poverty is down a little, and uh, it, it's, it, it's just uh, way beyond the wildest dreams of any Pharaoh or Caesar. And, and we do have the we have uh, uh, defeated a lot of discrimination in this country, not by any means all of it, but we've come a long, long ways. Nevertheless, uh, the very success, I believe, of our system is revealing its limits because we have not conquered the poverty gap. It's getting worse. We have not conquered uh, many of the problems of people with disabilities. I mean, we, we have uh, we have created in empowerment programs which have uh, uh, done miracles in the lives of many people like me. But uh, uh, the ones that were lucky to get uh, included in the programs. But there are millions who are not included, and I think as a group, people with disabilities are still the oppressed of the oppressed. Uh, the, 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 the poverty gap is absolutely enormous in this country. I, they, they don't talk about that on television. Uh, the, uh, I've been looking into it, and the, and the bottom fifth, and they say everybody's going up now, finally, even the poor people are going up. That's true. In the last 10 years, the bottom fifth 
of the population, most of whom are poor, by what I read, maybe not by the official standards, but by any rational standards, they have their income has gone up. Point seven, seventy percent of one percent in the last ten years. The income of the top fifty percent has gone up twenty-six times that much. The income of the top five uh, percent has gone up fifty-six times that much. And that's misleading because the Census Department did not count incomes over a million dollars. Did you know that? So when you say the top uh, 5% have gone up uh, uh, 56 times as much, it's probably 80 times as much. They didn't count Bill Gates' income. They counted Bill Gates as earning a million dollars a year. He earns about $5 billion a year. And then we got lots of people who earn way over a million dollars a year. They didn't count that. And and uh, the Secretary of Housing sent out a uh, a letter, uh, which I'm sure you got a copy of, about four days ago, which said that uh, of the poor families that seek to rent, of the eight thousand eight million seven hundred thousand poor families that seek to rent. Uh, 66,000 of them uh, have no house anywhere in the United States that they can afford to rent or apartment. And this is, uh, you know, 19, uh, November 1999, October 1999. And uh, so I propose that we uh, need to get democracy on the offense. Democracy's been on the defense uh, against this uh, this uh, resurgence of uh, of uh, no, I hate to call them demagogues. That's insulting, but I think they are. Uh, who would take us back to the days of power and privilege for the few? And they call themselves Republicans. They're totally opposed to what Abraham Lincoln stood for. They want to dismantle the federal government. Abraham Lincoln thought keeping the federal government uh, uh, powerful enough to support the civil rights of its members was worth going to war for and to dying for, and he died for it. And Teddy Roosevelt was uh, an absolute fanatic on the subject. At any rate, I think that uh, now is the time when the disability community can help democracy to go on the offense and to lead a revolution of empowerment. And these are the kinds of things I'm writing now. You have the power. Live the dream, the revolution of empowerment. Why? We in the disability community have experimented and practically invented empowerment in the terms of a customized uh, plan for winning in life 
for each individual person because we're all different. We have physically different problems and psychologically different problems. So of necessity, we have invented customized empowerment. Not empowerment so much by groups, but by uh, one by one. And it works, it works. Look at all these people who were previously shut up in institutions or dead, and, and now they're uh, uh, doing anything you can imagine, including becoming president of the United States, FDR. And uh, I think now is the time to create a culture of empowerment where the, the, the problem students in schools, the dropouts, the single mothers in the ghetto, and a lot of the people who, uh, who are middle and upper middle class people who, who uh, feel very frustrated uh, chase, chasing the, uh, uh, the, the ad agency lifestyle, which they can't come anywhere near affording. And just on the last tape, tell us in a couple of sentences how you, what you want your legacy to be. I think we've got to, well, my legacy, I would like to be remembered for this last statement that we need to create America for all. We need to get this to dialogue again, what it used to be. The good life for all, it can be done if we create a culture that empowers every person on a custom basis to govern self and to govern all and to create the good life for self and all. And, and that is, I think it's doable. I think it will save money, not cost money, and it will create the, the uh, most explosive prosperity uh, since the Industrial uh, Revolution. And that, uh, uh, that is the, what I am uh, uh, working on uh, now. Thank you so much. This was very wonderful. Well, I'm sorry to spend more time on this. Well, we've actually used up all our tapes today. This is <laughs> To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, Tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently for letting you, me, or nobody. Gonna hit as hard as life.
Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. My poor little children. Yes, we can. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. We wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Smart Radio app, Podable, and more. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.